Welcome back, everyone. This is still Sam. And this is Kareen, and we are two Onk Dogs. And I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan from the Fellow On Call. This special collaboration episode will be covering a brief review of the workup and management of advanced classical Hodgkin's lymphomas and a discussion of the SWOG 1826 trial, which was a plenary abstract at ASCO 2023. Yeah, so let's start off with a brief patient case. We have a 34-year-old woman who's admitted for one-month history of progressive night sweats and a 10-pound weight loss. She has worsening dyspnea and cough. A CT shows a 10-centimeter mediastinal mass, right cervical and supraclavicular adenopathy, and mesenteric adenopathy. She underwent a core biopsy of the supraclavicular node, which was consistent with classical Hodgkin's lymphoma, nodular sclerosing subtype. What would we expect to see on pathology for classical Hodgkin's lymphoma? And what are all the subtypes that we need to hear about? And what do they actually mean? This confused me for a very long time, and it's actually not that difficult. So what everyone needs to understand is that Hodgkin lymphoma is very hard to diagnose without an excisional biopsy. A core biopsy can be adequate. And this is because the tumor is often largely composed of a non-neoplastic inflammatory infiltrate that the malignant Reed Sternberg cells that we all learned about with the ally appearance coordinate. So they basically release all these cytokines, cause this inflammatory infiltrate, and cause this tumor to grow. The subgroups you'll see on path reports are nodular sclerosis, mixcellularity, lymphocyte-rich, and lymphocyte-depleted. And in the past, this had a lot of prognostic utility, but in the era of modern therapy, that's really gone away. So it kind of tells us a little bit about prognosis, but not as much now, which is why you won't even see these listed as inclusion criteria for trials. You might think, well, this is lymphoma. So what about flow cytometry? And flow is not really helpful in Hodgkin lymphoma in many cases, because you will rarely flow a Reed Sternberg cell to get its immunophenotype. So really the important thing is that IHC immunohistochemical staining where you're looking at what proteins are being expressed. And often these are CD30 positive and PAX5 low or PAX5 weak. And that's important because it just gives you exactly what the phenotype of these cells are. So they look like reed Sternberg cells, they have the staining pattern, and that's what we call classical Hodgkin lymphoma. Why is it called classical and just not Hodgkin lymphoma? There's another category called nodular lymphocyte predominant, and this tends to be a more indolent lymphoma and CD20 positive with risk of transformation to an aggressive lymphoma, kind of like you know when you're thinking about things like follicular and other types of indolent lymphomas. So here we're talking about that classical Hodgkin lymphoma with those Reed-Sternberg cells. Subtypes used to be prognostic, but not as much in current therapy. Yeah, this definitely brings me back to my heme past days in fellowship. Um, I'm a bit more out of touch with malignant heme now. But as we know, in lymphoma, we stage these patients with a PET CT. And early stage disease is when it's confined to the same side of the diaphragm, whereas advanced stage disease is considered above and below the diaphragm. And if you have extranodal involvement, including the bone marrow, that's also advanced stage. And so this patient has advanced stage classical Hodgkin's lymphoma. So before we discuss this abstract, what is the standard of care treatment for these patients? This is an interesting topic because it varies between the United States and Europe. And also in this study, we're going to talk about pediatric patients. So I'm going to briefly touch on that. The bottom line is uh, over the past few years, we've changed our standard of care in classical advanced Hodgkin lymphoma from ABVD, that regimen that you might have heard about, to BVAVD, which is incorporating a drug called brentuximab vidotin, which is a CD30 antibody drug conjugate. 
And that was the Echelon 1 trial, which showed that it was better than ABVD, had an improved overall survival. And that has become the standard of care in the United States really over the past year. In Europe, they use a regimen called Escalated Biacop. And don't worry, listeners, about all the letters and all of those things. They'll be in the show notes, so don't worry about that. But bottom line is that's a very toxic regimen. You can do a pet adaptive approach where you only do four cycles instead of six cycles of therapy. And in Europe, that's our standard of care. Why don't we do it in the US? We've seen a lot of non-inferiority, and that BIACOP has a lot of late toxicities of things like leukemia and MDS, as well as infertility. In the pediatric setting, recently what, what has been approved is also the use of this Brentuximab vidotin in addition to a chemo backbone. They use something called AVPC. Don't worry about it. And the important thing to note in the pediatric population is about 50 to 60% of these patients will undergo radiation therapy. And we do that for patients with bulky mediastinal disease. And what we define that as is greater than 10 centimeters. And that's very commonly done in the pediatric setting, less commonly done in the adult setting. And the other thing I want to note is when you're adding this brentuximab, it requires the use of GCSF, which for younger patients can cause a lot of bone pain. And that's just another shot that somebody has to take. As long as we're talking about antibody drugs, I've heard a lot of buzz around the use of immunotherapy for Hodgkin lymphoma, specifically immune checkpoint inhibitors. What's the rationale for this? And, and do they really work as well as people are telling me they do? Yeah, this is an interesting thing about how we've discovered the pathogenesis of Hodgkin lymphoma and figured out good methods to treat it. A common genetic abnormality for these Hodgkin lymphoma patients with their Reed-Sternberg cells is chromosome 9p24 genetic abnormality. And this upregulates PDL1 and PDL2. So, in general, it's basically like your immune system is there, but all of the Hodgkin lymphoma cells are wearing fake mustaches with all this PDL1. So, why don't we give a drug that'll rip off all the fake mustaches and allow your immune system to kill it? That's a very simplified mechanism of how something like nivolumab or pembrolizumab works. And then we said, why don't we give this in the relapse refractory setting and found that overall response rates were about 70%. And after that, we said, why don't we push that up front? What if we did immune therapy plus chemotherapy backbone? And several phase two sh studies showed that PFS at two to three years was somewhere between 95 to 100% when we're combining a chemotherapy backbone with either sequential or concurrent immunotherapy. One thing you'll hear about in Hodgkin lymphoma is getting a PET scan after two cycles of therapy. Classically, we did a regimen called ABVD and would drop the bleomycin if the PET scan was negative after the second cycle. With immunotherapy, what we know in those phase two trials is maybe about half the patients will be PET positive after the second cycle of therapy, but they, again, 95 to 100% will still have no progression of disease or no recurrence of the disease at several years. So interim PET is not as useful in immunotherapy-treated patients, and we'll talk a little bit about that with this trial. So let's dive into this truly remarkable cooperative group study presented at the plenary session at ASCO 2023. And so it was the SWOG 1826 randomized phase three trial, which compared, compared nivolumab AVD to BVAVD in pediatric and adult patients with advanced-stage classical Hodgkin lymphoma. It included patients age 12 and older, and radiation therapy was optional at the end of treatment. Ultimately, they needed to randomize 470 patients to both arms, and dates of enrollment were from July 2019 to October 2022, and these results were presented already this year in 2023, which is pretty amazing. 
the primary endpoint of the study was PFS. And so Vivek, what were the results of this incredible study? So this was such an amazing study that we were able to enroll all of these patients so quickly and get an answer. And the other thing I really liked about this, a lot of the patients, I do a lot of malignant hematology, have HIV, and they have HIV-associated lymphoma, which can happen in Hodgkin, and they included those patients. Many, many of these trials exclude those patients, so I thought that was great. There were, in total, a little less than 490 patients randomized to both arms. About 25% of the, percent of the patients were pediatric, and amazingly, 25% of these patients were Black or Hispanic, which is really good and groundbreaking for clinical trials and just shows that we can do this in the cooperative group setting. 10% of these patients were older than 60, which really matches with the exact population that we typically see for Hodgkin lymphoma. 60% of the patients had stage 4 disease, and 30% of the patients had bulky disease defined as a mass greater than 10 centimeters. So this is representative of the higher-risk patients that we would want to be giving these treatments to. The punchline is the one-year PFS for Nebo AVD was 94% versus 86% in BV AVD. It's a hazard ratio of 0.48, the p-value of 0.0005, and the overall survival data wasn't mature enough to interpret, but that is pretty incredible that 94% versus 86% at one year. So before we get into the difference in adverse events, can you comment on that hazard ratio and p-value? Many of the speakers I heard would say highly st statistically significant. Is there like a strict cutoff for that? What does that mean? And also, uh, can you comment on how the median was not reached and, and how quickly this trial enrolled? I mean, this is a really fast turnaround time to get to get data and expect it to be mature and really concepts that are essential for us to understand throughout medicine, evidence-based medicine. Yeah, I think this is really important to know. So one, a lot of trials that I hear are people saying that this is highly statistically significant. When we're looking at statistical significance with a p-value, we're not looking at the effect size. What we're saying is, are we pretty confident that this is not by chance or is this by chance? And that's what a p-value is. If you're less than 0.05, it doesn't matter if you're 0.000001 or 0.01. If you're less than 0.05, we say that that's fine. So that's the one uh, important thing with the p-value. So highly statistically significant doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't imply a bigger effect size. The second thing that people talk about is how we need to wait for the median to be reached. And in many of these patients, they do too well for the median to be reached. But the big thing is, and in, in when we think about improving treatments, is if the effect size is big, like we saw in this trial, you don't need to wait for the median to be reached. You can get your answer within three years. If we enroll cooperatively in a large pragmatic trial where we're enrolling Black Hispanic patients, pediatric and adult patients we're fortunate to do in this trial, that the effect size will tell you when you can find the difference. If there's a large effect size difference, you can find your answer earlier. If there's a tiny difference, then yeah, it'll take a very long time, but you do not need the median to be reached in order to find a difference between two treatments. Thanks for going over all of that. So now let's get back to the adverse events of this trial. Surprisingly, there were very low rates of immune-mediated adverse events. Most importantly, more patients could finish therapy and much less neuropathy, which is a big problem with brintuximab and dotin. Can you give us a brief summary on the differences in the tolerability and the adverse events profiles? Yeah, I think one of the hardest things in classical Hodgkin lymphoma for advanced stage patients is that we were using brentuximab in a lot of younger patients, which is a microtubule agent. 
brintuximab vidotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate that causes a lot of neuropathy. And the use of GCSF in young patients, they have a lot of bone pain. And I saw a lot of my patients talk about that. What we found in this study was that those who got nivolumab had significantly net less neuropathy. We're talking the rates were 54% in the brentuximab group and only 28% in the nivolumab group, which is truly incredible and helpful for our patients. And the incidence of bone pain, because we have to use less GCSF, was 20% in those treated with brentuximab and only 8% in those treated with nivolumab. Interestingly, things like LFT elevation, colitis, those were identical between the two groups. And the only difference was hypothyroidism. There was 7% incidence of hypothyroidism in the nivolumab group. But again, we're not seeing these major immune-related adverse events. And the biggest takeaway is that less than 1% in both arms got radiation. And we're talking about many of these pediatric patients, it used to be up to 50 to 60%. So we're significantly reducing the amount of late toxicity from radiation and still having good overall outcomes. So how does this change treatment for patients with advanced stage classical Hodgkin's lymphoma? Where does the field go from here? And uh, also, is this is this the end of interim PET? Are we, are we still going to be doing that? Personally, I think this is truly practice changing here. Because when we think about classical Hodgkin lymphoma for these patients, I want to give a treatment that's highly effective and not toxic to them. And to me, nivolumab, AVD with less neuropathy, less bone pain, no increase in IRAEs, this seems like the way to go. And this was truly an incredible trial to accrue this quickly, get the answer this quickly, and enroll a minority population. In terms of the interim PET, when you're using immunotherapy, I think we may see the end of interim PET in that situation, but what we should see in the future and what correlative analyses will be done with this trial is looking at things like ctDNA to see who can we de-escalate chemotherapy on. And I think that'll be really the future is now, yeah, we're, Nevo AVD is great, but maybe we could just do Nevo BV or maybe we could just do Nevo AD or, or however you want to slice it up. Who can we de-escalate therapy for? I think this is a really exciting abstract. Thanks for going over it. And I agree, if we can de-escalate, but still get these awesome responses just by being smarter instead of stronger with our treatments, I, it's fabulous. Changing changing the scape of how we treat malignant hematology conditions. So thank you guys so much for listening and tune into our next collab episode, which will be out next Monday, where we'll be covering another abstract from ASCO 2023. And as always, guys, please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments on our Twitter, Instagram, or our websites, 2 Docs, and the fellow on call. Have a great week.